You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter, Casper, and SaneBox for their continued support of SpyCast. you hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guest. We're excited, especially on today, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, to have Dwayne Evans here with us. Uh, he's a former CIA operations officer uh, with field tours in four continents, including serving as a chief of station, which, as many of you know, uh, is CIA's most senior field position. He is a recipient of the Intelligence Star for Valor and the Career Commendation Medal. And prior to joining the agency, he was a U.S. Army Special Forces and Military Intelligence Officer. He's a graduate of the New Mexico State University, uh, go Aggies, I guess, and, uh, and is the author of a novel, North from Calcutta, as well as Foxtrot in Kandahar, a memoir of a CIA officer in Afghanistan at the inception of America's longest war. Welcome, Dwayne. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the Spy Museum. Thank you for having me. So when anyone writes a memoir, especially somebody uh, who is a former practitioner, uh, the question tends to be why, uh, and even more so with this book, because this is not just a memoir of your life. It's not, you know, when I was born. It, it's really a memoir of a very particular time in your history. It's a snapshot of a specific period. So why focus specifically on this time uh, and, and not, you know, hey, it's a 400-page book about my life and my childhood? Yeah, good question. I, uh, I, I, I feel for the reasons you stated um, th that it's a special time. It was a very special time. For me, it was a uh, very emotional time. The whole um, catalyst for my involvement in Afghanistan was were the 9-11 attacks, which um, today, of course, is the anniversary of. And, uh, and it was such a powerful experience for me that I knew I wanted to write about it, if only for myself, if only for maybe my family to read about it. Uh, and so, uh, but as years passed, I, I, even though I had written a, an initial spine of, of the story, just for my own remembrance, uh, as the years passed and we continued to be involved in Afghanistan, and I, I realized how important the story was to me, and I, and I began to see it as, as from a human interest standpoint, that it might be of interest to other people, as well as uh, from the standpoint of it being a historical account of a, of a very special time. The whole uh, involvement of the, of the CIA in Afghanistan in that initial period was kind of unique. Uh, 
uh, and it was under extraordinary circumstances. And for those reasons, I thought I should just I could write something that just focused exclusively on that and not go into all the other things right. that you mentioned. We have a lot of authors who are former practitioners who come to the museum or they're on the podcast, and many of them have nightmare stories about the Publication Review Board at CIA. You actually talk about operations here. You talk about, let's use the sources and methods in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. But you had very little trouble getting this through to the PRB. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Because there are certainly others that might want to know yeah. how you have a successful uh, PRB experience. Um, but also, was it purposeful when you were writing it? Were you trying to figure out what could you say and what couldn't you? D definitely, it was pur purposeful uh, because I didn't want to run into a lot of problems with the PRB. And I've seen other books, and I had a good sense of what the, the uh, Publications Review Board is looking for in terms of what they would censor out. And they're looking at it from the standpoint of classified information, and uh, particularly regarding protection of sources and methods. So I wrote the book in a way that I think I protected sources and methods, and it was the, the nature of the operations we were doing in Afghanistan at the time weren't your classic espionage operations. We weren't, you know, the book isn't really about running agents, running assets, uh, receiving intelligence reporting. Uh, some of that was going on, uh, but that, I didn't focus on that because that wasn't the main uh, theme of the book, or the main thing that we were doing for that matter. So uh, because it was a it was a paramilitary operation for the most part. And a lot of this became public anyway. Mm -hmm. And over, this is now 16 years after the fact. So there's been some other things written, although most of that dealt with the North. Most of the things that were written uh, about Afghanistan in those days dealt with the North. And so the South hadn't been written about. And because some of these things had already been approved uh, dealing with the North, I've, usually the policy with PRB is if it's been approved, something similar has been approved by them, then if you write about it, even though they may initially say you can't do it, if you can point to them and say, but you allowed this other book to publish this, and, and, and it was fine, they will, they will reconsider and um, allow you to, to publish that in your book. Well, you brought up 9-11, and how could you not? Right? I mean, the anniversary of it. Um, and there's very few young people in here, so just about everybody probably remembers where they were on 9-11. Uh, you were a block from here. That's correct. Uh, on 9-11, actually, at the FBI headquarters. Um, already kind of talking about some of the same concerns that everyone would be talking about a couple hours later. Can you talk a little bit about your experience that day sure. and, and how you and others kind of started seeing the writing on the wall long before the American public did? Yeah, well, on 9-11, it's really uh, interesting. Like I say, I was only a block or so from here, a couple blocks from here. Uh, I was at the FBI headquarters building, and there's a gentleman in the audience here, a very dear friend of mine, who uh, happened to be with me, who I talk about in the book. And I didn't know he was going to be here, but uh, <laughs> he has showed up. But uh, his, I'll just call him Frank. Frank is a, uh, FBI, or was an FBI special agent. And I was on leave at, at, on the day of 9-11 in 2001. And I'd just come back from overseas a few weeks before, and I actually had the benefit of being on a very extended leave because I had a lot of accumulated leave. So I was looking at a, a long leave period. And in fact, uh, I wasn't supposed to go to work until late October. And that was going to be at the FBI as a CIA liaison officer. And Frank, who had been working with me overseas, had brought up a foreign delegation to visit uh, the FBI and, and to take to CIA headquarters as well for a uh, briefing on the threat of international terrorism. And Frank uh, invited me to join him at FBI headquarters to see this group, some of whom I knew, this uh, Latin American delegation, 
and he had a tour of the building. And I thought as I was going to be a liaison officer in a couple months, quite a great opportunity. Plus, I wanted to see Frank. I hadn't seen him now in a, in a month or two since I'd left the, the station where we'd worked together. So Frank and I, who had gone through a lot together already, uh, we ran CT operations, counterterrorist operations overseas, and uh, had other, other very dramatic experiences that we went through that are mentioned in the book. Um, we, he met me outside. I was sipping a cappuccino, enjoying the weather just like today, beautiful day, and I was thinking how good life was, and waiting, waiting for Frank to show up with his uh, delegation. So I, I met them there. We went up to, uh, to the FBI headquarters up into their operations center, and we got there around 9 o'clock, and um, things were, we couldn't find the person we were supposed to meet, and soon... Um, Soon we were asked to escort the uh, foreign delegation out of the operations center that uh, there was a, uh, had been an incident in New York, a plane hit the building. We assumed it was a small plane. We went downstairs and, um, and we went to the cafeteria to figure out what are we going to do now that we're not going to have this tour and this, this briefing. And that's when we saw the news reports, saw the television for the first time. We saw what was really going on and realized right then, okay, this is something major, much bigger than what I think either one of us had, had imagined. And uh, it was, you know, quite, quite a, sh a shock as it was to everyone. And I, and I knew at that moment uh, when, this when the second plane hit the building, I knew that uh, this was Al-Qaeda. I, I instantly knew that. There was no question in my mind who had done it. And I knew it would mean we were going to go to a war, that we would be in the war soon. And, uh, and I knew I had to be part of that. Because you had been focused on counterterrorism for years at this point. You, you Another interesting kind of you were there in a weird time story in the book is a month before the African embassy bombings in 1998, right. you were actually at one of the African embassies talking about how bad the security was. That's correct. I happened just uh, by chance, uh, I visited that, uh, the one in Nairobi actually. I was in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and talking to a, an embassy officer there uh, about their, their poor security, that, uh, the physical security of the embassy. And we happened to be standing in, in the exact spot where a truck bomb would later, a month later, was going to detonate and kill a lot of people. Uh, and I, even, I, I was overseas at the time when that, that attack happened, and I was, I was back at the, uh, my, my station I'd left from when I went out to visit the, in Africa, and I saw the paper, the newspaper that morning, and I, I saw the, the graph of the picture of where the bomb had gone off, and I realized instantly I knew exactly where that place was. That was the place I'd visit, and that was the place I, I and the embassy officer had, had stood. So, yeah, I, I was familiar with terrorism for some time. Well, it's interesting what the embassy officer said to you. He understood that there were security issues. Oh, absolutely. It wasn't a surprise to them. They knew about it more than I did, and they had requested, uh, the ambassador there had made requests to the State Department to uh, move locations. This had been going on for some time because of the security vulnerabilities of, this, of the embassy. And the officer told me at that moment, he said, yeah, we, we know it's vulnerable, but uh, they're not going to do anything. He said, the ambassador has requested this, but there's not going to be any changes done until this building is blown down. And a month later, it was blown down. You had mentioned that immediately by watching the TV coverage about 9-11 that you knew that we were at war. Uh, and most people understand that essentially the CIA ramped up immediately uh, for the what would be called the global war on terror for whatever words you want to use. Right. Uh, and certainly everyone uh, attempted to ramp up as quickly as you, they could, but there's bureaucracy that started getting in the way. And one of the, the biggest issues that you, you outline in the book is that the, the Near East and South Asian Division, or the NE Division, which was focused on that area of the world, mm -hmm. had potential 
responsibility now mm -hmm. is of Afghanistan, but at the same time, it was a counterterrorism operation. You had the counterterrorism center right. at CIA. How did some of these inter-service rivalries begin to play out and cause problems for the mission moving forward? Well, um, it became a problem for me immediately because I was, I was caught between the two, those two uh, divisions. I was uh, actually home-based with NE division, NESA division, uh, South Asia division. Uh, but I was on a rotational assignment to the counterterrorism center when I was overseas as, as a chief of station. Uh, so when I returned and when 9-11 happened, I literally, as soon as the traffic cleared out of, um, out of Washington, I got in my car and went to headquarters, to CIA headquarters, to, uh, to, to say, hey, I'm coming off leave. I'm, I'm here. I want to help. Who's going to be running the, the show here in terms of the response? And they didn't know. And, and it was some period of time, days anyway, while this was kind of being debated would it be the counterterrorism center which has the the mission of of countering terrorism or any division which had owned owned the territory where we would be operating against al-qaeda and and, and and taliban so th there was there was a I, I that those decisions were made at a very high level i wasn't sitting in a meeting when those were made and but they're relatively quickly they were made but initially no one knew who was actually going to take the lead on the resp the cia response to 9-11. And so it took a while to play out. And ultimately, the decision was made, well, counterterrorism center is going to be taking the lead on this. And any would play a, a very important supporting role, of course. And you were there in limbo trying to volunteer. And yes. they couldn't even find your information. Right, right. right? Yeah. You, you know, yeah. it's like, you can't volunteer because you don't technically <laughs> exist. We don't know where your file is. Yeah, they couldn't. The, the new office within uh, counterterrorism center, um, special operations, they called it, uh, was was wanted volunteers, of course, but they were going to do a special vetting of them to make sure they had the people they wanted. And so I went in, and I was like one of the very, very first people. There were only a handful of people there uh, when they formed it up. And they said, well, we have to vet you. And I said, fine. And, and uh, But then they couldn't find my file. They, they did, CTC didn't have it. NE Division didn't have it. So they couldn't read my file. But it turned out I knew the I knew the person who was appointed to be the chief of the Special Operations Center. And when he, uh, and when he came back, he just said, no. Nah. We, we can take them. They didn't, they didn't bother to review my file. We'll have more of Dwayne in just one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. When we need to hire a new person, we want to get the very best people, and of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never-ending and can take a huge amount of time, time we don't have, as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. One more time to try it for free, ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. 
So let's talk about Afghanistan, because obviously that, that's kind of the focus here. Um, the CIA didn't just figure out Afghanistan was there on 9-11. They certainly knew about it back in the 80s, but even during the 90s and the early 2000s, mm -hmm. there were some contingency planning happening mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. There was liaison between CIA Absolutely. and the Northern Alliance. There right. was a constant attempt to keep in contact. But right before 9-11, and this is actually something that maybe people don't know the history right. of, the top person of the Northern Alliance, the person that we would have immediately reached out to to work with, was assassinated by al-Qaeda. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Massoud was uh, the leader of the, of the Northern Alliance. And um, th three or four days now, I don't remember exactly when, but he was, he was assassinated by a couple of people posing as journalists who were al-Qaeda affiliated. And they've been waiting for days and days to see him in their, in their camp up with the Northern Alliance headquarters area. And finally, the last minute, he said, yeah, bring him in, I'll, I'll see him. And they, they, were, they had explosives with him, and they, they killed him. And, and the problem that it immediately, it immediately presented was he was this very charismatic, very capable uh, leader of the Northern Alliance. And when he was killed, again, just days before 9-11, and then 9-11 happened, and we had this, as you mentioned, this liaison going with, with the Northern Alliance, who we, we then turned to, to, to join forces with, but their leader had just been assassinated. And, and I don't know if it was ever proven or known if it was actually done, that, that assassination was done as, a, as part of the, the whole uh, plot for 9-11, them anticipating that we would do what we did, which join forces with them. I don't know. I can't speak to that, but uh, that certainly is a possibility. I mean, the timing is so coincidental, if not. I mean, that seems extraordinary that yeah. it, it seems like it almost has to be a first shot yeah. uh, before 9-11 for that. Um, what, what I thought also. Go back to bureaucracy because the, the kind of the undercurrent here is we want to go, we want to do something about it. You already talked about the counterterrorism, CTCSO, Special mm -hmm. Operations. Mm -hmm. The problem that you lay out was one that I think all of us can appreciate and understand, even if we haven't experienced it ourselves, is that you have a new unit standing up, but no one in other units wants to give up their best people. And you That's want right. to go fight the war on terror, you want the best people around, but as leadership throughout CIA, why would you give up your top, your top operators to go with some to some new unit? Yeah, that, that was that, and I, I I say in my book, in fact, I call that a, a failure of leadership. Um, that where we had so many people, so many senior officers, who who basically wanted to continue as if nothing had happened in terms of their management of personnel. That when we when requests were made for their officers to come join our, our CCSO. It was we had to fight to get those officers because they're either their chiefs of station or their division chiefs uh, didn't want to give them up. They just didn't recognize, in my view, they didn't recognize that the world had changed with 9/11. That this was not going to be the, the standard kind of thing that CIA did for a while. We're going to we're, we're going to we're going to be things are going to change here, and we needed people with particularly people with had pre previous military skills, people who had certain language skills uh, that would be applicable for you know operating in Afghanistan. Uh, and there were, frankly, there weren't that many that had those those the combination of, of talents. So when we found one, we really wanted them. We really needed them. But yet we often ran into problems with their chiefs or their the, either station chiefs, division chiefs, um, not wanting to give them up. Did you see it? Did you perceive it as a belief that this whole counterterrorism thing was a bit of a, a blip in the mission, and then eventually it would go back to being normal? How you the perception of some of the leadership treating you this way? 
I certainly didn't see it as a blip. I mean, I, I, I knew this was major. This was a game changer. No, I understand that you yeah. did. I'm saying, do, did you perceive that they were thinking that way, and that's why they were unwilling to give up? Yeah, I perceived exactly that's what they were thinking. That, that I even heard, basically heard comments to that effect. Well, you know, yeah, this is bad, but, you know, it's going to change, and things will get back to normal, and we're still going to have our regular mission. And, and I heard that sort of talk. So that, 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 that kind of philosophy was there, and I, I found it very disappointing. Not everybody was that way. I don't want to give the wrong impression here, but there were enough people that felt that way that did make it difficult to get some of the people we were trying to get. Ultimately, I think we got pretty much everybody we wanted because I think uh, Director Tennant, ultimately, when he got involved in it, he would support what, uh, what that mission was and CTCSO's request for those personnel, and he would weigh in and, and, and we'd get the, the people eventually. So you had mentioned already that the, the lookout was for people who were CIA officers but also had military background, which you fit that role. Mm -hmm. You had been both in special forces and military intelligence, but it had been a while, been a while at while. that point. Yeah. Um, did you have to retrain yourself very, very quickly in, in the stuff that you'd learned in the past? I, I know that you, you, you got it and you flew commercial, which I thought was interesting as well. Yeah. Uh, and there's a great story of you going through Charles de Gaulle Airport, which you can tell or not. Yeah. Uh, you can leave it for people to read in the book if you, if you decide. Um, but when you hit the ground, you're working with people who are currently in special operations, right. whether Delta or SF or SEALs. Um, and then people, let's not use the word younger, people who had more recent military experience than you yeah, did. Uh, how high was the learning curve to try to come back and, and relearn some of those skills that, that you had before? Well, I didn't have a lot of time to, to relearn anything uh, other than we got requalified on, actually I was probably, I think I was already qualified from my previous tour, but I think I did do a requal for weapons training. But that wasn't a, a big issue. Uh, where I was really in the dark more was with the communications equipment that the military was using, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I basically, because we had ultimately on the team that I, I led, we eventually had um, a couple of special operators from the military that were detailed to us that were part of the team. And then we were working jointly with the Special Forces team, uh, an ODA. So um, I, I didn't have time to relearn all that. I had to rely on the people who knew those skills. The, the, probably the bigger advantage for me having prior military experience was I understood, I understood the um, environment, you know, being out in the field, that kind of living, uh, that the, the, the types of things we were, were having to contend with. I, it wasn't unfamiliar to me. It had been a while, but it, I, felt, I felt pretty much at home, actually. Well, you mentioned that. I, sorry to interrupt you. I, I think that was extraordinary because most people who get deployed to Afghanistan think they're on the moon because it's such a, it's such a foreign environment. Right. For many people who grew up in the United States, and it, you know, most a lot of people actually thought they were going to the desert, which only a small little portion of Afghanistan. But you said it was almost like being at home back in New Mexico, like out, Absolutely. you know, out Absolutely. going fishing and hunting. You know, like, like yeah. you've been. Uh, it was. It was. I felt. I really had to. I felt so comfortable there just because of the natural environment. I mean, it's so familiar to me uh, in terms of just what I saw and felt, how the air felt, how the land looked. Um, carrying, a, carrying a rifle. That, when I was a kid, I grew up, that's what all I did was hunt. And um, so it was very natural feeling. So that I, well, I didn't feel like I was in an alien environment at all. In fact, I had to, I had to kind of remind myself, hey, this is a war zone. This isn't <laughs> New Mexico. You're, you're not out hunting quail here. Uh, so. well, um, let me ask you about your, your arrival there, because you didn't go directly to Afghanistan. You went to Pakistan Correct. first. And this, again, shows another level of tension, of bureaucratic tension within the CIA, because up until 9-11, or up until right after when you guys showed up 
uh, to start the operations there, Afghanistan had been controlled by the station in Pakistan. And they didn't quite realize, much as the way people back in headquarters didn't quite realize that the world had changed as dramatically as it had. Talk a little bit about that tension between not only the chief of station, but more of the deputy chief. Yeah, well, I think, I think they, they understood the, the, the significance of what had happened. Uh, I think what, it, what had changed, and maybe they hadn't really realized it was that organizationally, when CTCSO was formed up, then all of a sudden their role became different from what it had been. Because previously in Afghanistan, uh, we hadn't had a station in Kabul for, for years. And so Islamabad, being the closest to Kabul, uh, had taken over, they were basically the, what we call station in exile. And so for oper CIA operations, I won't say they controlled Afghanistan, because I don't think yeah. you can use that term with <laughs> Afghanistan. But, Even uh, today, yeah. you can't use it. But uh, they've been responsible for running uh, CIA operations activities in, in uh, Afghanistan up until 9-11 when CTCSO came on. And CTCSO was given the mission of, of running and managing CIA's um, uh, response to 9-11 inside Afghanistan. We were, SO was responsible for, the, for running that war from the CIA standpoint. And that caused a lot of friction because I think Station still saw itself as the premier uh, leader in that regard. They were still very important. I do not want to in any way under, under, uh, underestimate or underdescribe what the role was for, for the, the Station. They played a huge, important role, but they were not in charge any longer. Uh, SO was, and that so there was friction. Even before I got out to Pakistan, there had been plenty of communications back and forth, and the friction was evident in the communications between Islamabad Station and CTCSO. Mm -hmm. uh, that that there was a lot of friction, different ideas about how we should proceed in the war, that kind of thing. And so when I went out there, along with a colleague of mine, when we arrived out there, uh, we were pretty much seen as almost the enemy by by certain members of the station. A central figure in Afghanistan at the time was Hamid Karzai. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's turned into a bit of a controversial figure because his rise to power was seen as a huge win for the United States and everybody against the Taliban. But his actual reign in charge of Afghanistan was seen as less successful. Mm -hmm. um, but you knew Karzai pretty well. You had a closer relationship to Karzai than a lot of other people and just about anybody. Um, you... Uh, ended up being almost could knock on the wall and talk to Karzai. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you weren't his roommate, but close enough. Uh, can you describe a little bit about who he was as a man? Because you do describe him in the book, and it's interesting uh, how positive, uh, especially since a lot of the negativity about Karzai has right. come out since. Right. Uh, well, yeah, I, I got to know him. It really a, it was a brief period that I was I was actually with him, but I was. Like you say, I was literally right next in the room next door, and I was kind of his go-to guy. So I, I got to spend a lot of time with him during that, that that compacted time frame. And there are other other agency officers and others and other, throughout the government who have gotten to know him much better than I did at the time. Um, but I mean, at that moment in time, I did I did get to know him, and I saw him again later on. But um, he, I mean, I know about the negative things that have come out about Karzai since. But in my book, even though I wrote that retrospectively. I didn't want that to impact at all how I felt about him at the time. I wanted to portray him as I, as I knew him then, and I was extremely impressed with the man. The guy was, uh, I, I, and I say this in the book, I knew that I was in the presence of a historical figure when I was around him. He was extremely dedicated, totally focused on, on freeing Afghanistan of the Taliban, 
Um, just, just a gentleman uh, and not a venal bone in his body. Uh, he was, he's no, I mean, I can't imagine him being personally corrupt. Um, extremely brave. The man had already gone into Afghanistan by himself to, to initially start this rebellion against the Taliban. Uh, so I had nothing but respect for, for Karzai uh, at the time and uh, genuinely liked him. And I think most people, I, I don't know anyone who didn't like him. Uh, you know, over time, you know, as, as the, uh, you know, the, the president in, in Afghanistan, you know, he, there's been different things that have been said about him, and I wasn't working with him then. And I, I've got to say, though, he had a tough road to hoe when you think about it. I mean, he's trying to balance all the, all this conflicting interest in Afghanistan and be the leader of his own country. So sometimes when he would make a decision that we as Americans might not like, we, I think we were failing to realize, wait a minute, he's in charge of his own country. He's acting, trying to act in the best interest of his country. So he's trying to balance all this. So it's, I can't imagine how he did the job. Yeah, I think he was in it for 12 years. Oh, and running a country that's never really been a oh, country. exactly. Yeah. We'll hear more about Foxtrot team in a moment, but first let me tell you a little about Casper. When I wake up in the morning, I know almost immediately how my day is going to be based on how well I slept. I think many of us are in the same boat on this. A lousy night's sleep makes for a grumpy Vince. Well, more grumpy than normal. Casper gets this too, and the company was created because better sleep makes for better living. Casper is a sleep brand that created an outrageously comfortable mattress sold directly to consumers, eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep service is developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in a small, how-did-they-do-that size box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. Casper brings quality. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper. It combines supportive memory foams for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature throughout the night. Casper also brings convenience. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly become the Internet's favorite mattress. And this is not just on a random site. We're talking about Casper, Amazon, and Google reviews. And again, free shipping and returns to both the United States and Canada. Try Casper now for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, again, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. The Casper is designed, developed, and assembled here in the United States. So today, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash spycast and using the code spycast. That's casper.com slash spycast and use the code spycast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, Karzai went in with a team called Echo Team, Correct. Uh, which you were supposed to be on, mm -hmm. um, but you got bumped at the last minute, literally on the last minute yeah. uh, because of space. Uh, I mean, sometimes, again, history happens because a helicopter or a plane can't hold enough people. That's correct. Uh, and you're, you, at that point, end up leading the team called Foxtrot Team. That's correct. Which, the title of the book, and so Karzai goes in with Echo Team. You instead um, are are matched up with another Afghan who gets the nickname the Gucci Mo the Gucci Muj. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about him because uh, I'm not sure he could be any more different 
than Hamid Karzai. Definitely a different personality, uh, clearly a, a different man. But uh, this is a guy called uh, uh, Gul Aga Shirzai, and uh, he had been the governor in Kandahar up until the Taliban had taken over, and he was, you know, had to flee Kandahar governorship, and he'd been living in exile in Pakistan for a number of years. And that's where the, the moniker, the Gucci Muj, came from. People thought, well, he's saying he wants to go back and fight the Taliban, but is he really up to the, up to the task to do that? And, and he had to prove himself. That was kind of the, the idea. And he, he did. He had gone into country and set up, a, set up a base just inside Afghanistan and had, uh, armed, had an armed group of guys and uh, some equipment and basically um, was, you know, showed some capability, some capacity for, for engaging al-Qaeda and, and uh, Taliban. And that's when the decision was made, kind of late. You know, Karzai takes off with the ECHO team. They go in, and, and then the next day, I'm, I'm called back to Islamabad and said, hey, we're going to do this other team. And it, although that had been talked about for some time, about joining up with Shirzai. And, but then it was like, yeah, we want to do this other team, and you got like, four days to do it. Right. You know. <laughs> well, it was at the abbreviated deployment time, and my next question was going to be about the Foxtrot team. Is there severe limitations <laughs> you have going in? Not only do you have very little time to prepare for this, but everything from your communications to weapons to everything else is very ad hoc. Yeah. Very much scrap it together when you can find it Correct. kind of things. Can you talk a little bit of the problems you ran into? Because not only is Shirzai different philosophically mm -hmm. than Hamid Karzai, yeah. they couldn't be two different people. I mean, Karzai is a relatively small, somewhat, you probably think of him as a, meek is the wrong word. I'm looking for a better word, the humble. From least, from yes, looking. Yes. and then Shirzai is larger yeah. than life, yeah. figuratively kind of and a burly kind of guy. Yeah. And exactly. how, how difficult was it? Number one, to get Foxtrot team put together with all mm -hmm. the limitations that you had, but number two, to deal with that kind of a personality that was so yeah. different than Hamid Karzai. Yeah, and one of the differences too is language. Uh, Karzai, of course, speaks beautiful English, probably better than mine. And uh, and Shirzai spoke no English; it was Pashto, and uh, we had no. Pashtu speakers amongst us, so we had to we we had to use a um, interpreter, first cousin, his great guy who I call uh, Khalil in the book, to be. Uh, he's always if I want to talk to Karzai, I'm, I'm I mean to Shirzai, I'm talking through Khalil to talk to him. So it's, you got that difference there that makes it a different relationship because I can't I don't I, I can't speak to him in my own native language. That's a, a, a big important factor. A lot of people forget about that. The language is a, is something to consider. Uh, yeah, his personality was, was he was more of a, of a physical kind of guy, hands-on kind of guy. Well, Karzai is more of an intellectual, um, more sophisticated in, in the way he thought about things and, and how he acted. But as far as uh, throwing together the team, it was, it was kind of difficult, but um, what we ended up doing, we had no communications gear, and it's kind of initially, they said, no, you got no comms gear, and I'm like, well, how am I going to help anybody if I can't talk to anybody? But we, we managed to scrape together some communications equipment. Uh, I, I had we my weapons from having gotten them from Echo Team, but uh, one of the guys that was coming with me, Mark, who was who was coming out of uh, Islamabad Station, he had he had no weapons. Um, and the station had issued all their handguns out, so he thought. But then we we finally through digging through shelves and climbing up on the rafters, found a, a handgun for him at least. And uh, and so he had to get us. He couldn't get he couldn't get a, an AK-47 until we got in country and, and got one from one of Shirzai's guys. But um, so just some basic stuff and the comm will be most important. 
And well, for Mark, probably the weapon might have been. Right, yeah. We're sending you to Afghanistan yeah. without a gun. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, he wasn't too thrilled about that. But uh, we got that worked out. And uh, then, then we, fortunately, we found two um, special military task force that was there in Islamabad, two guys who were like the advanced element for it. Uh, we got them wrote, uh, assigned, detailed, which was a miracle, frankly, detailed to, uh, again, bureaucracy, detailed to our team. And I say that because the, they had, we had to get, actually we had to get Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld's signature for those two guys to come in with us into, uh, into Afghanistan. But we needed them because they had the comms gear we needed, at least for part of the comms gear. Well, let me ask you about that relationship because that's, I think, very interesting to me about the CIA and special operations had been working a little bit together before 9-11, but 9-11 changes everything. Mm -hmm. Where that line that used to be pretty thick the demarcation between the military, special operations, and CIA is completely gone. Yeah. And really, this is the beginning of that melding of forces. So how, how was the relationship between CIA and special operations? And did the separate commands, the separate rules of engagement, separate bureaucracies, did they cause hiccups along the way? Well, you know, in those initial, initial months and, or weeks and months, uh, I would say it was almost seamless. How, and I think the whole reason it was almost seamless was simply because we were all so motivated, you know, just like back here at home. Think of how the people came together after 9-11. Same thing, but even more so with the, with the military and CIA in, in Afghanistan. We, we, we knew what our mission was. So people didn't, you know, there was really no friction on the ground. On the ground level, I was with a, you know, Special Forces team was with my team. We never had any conflict at all. Uh, at all, and, and that was because we were so mission focused. But but and, and, the, and the agency had had you know we have a paramilitary arm uh, and that are mostly made up of almost entirely made up of guys from 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 the military services. Many of them from different special operations elements of the military. So they are very familiar with the military. They still have friends in the, in, in those arms and things like that. And so our, our paramilitary, most of those teams in the initial. In the initial part of going into Afghanistan, they were made up of our paramilitary officers, so they, they you know, they, they're like very like-minded with their military colleagues that they were working with. They have the same training, the same everything. The difference is uh, they have a little bit of a different mission at that point. Our, you know, our 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 mission is is uh, intelligence collection, providing intelligence, uh, providing supp supplies. We, they have other we have other capabilities as well, um, but. In this case, working like with the special forces guys, their mission primarily was to bring in close air support to support the Afghans who were fighting on the ground. Right. So, but but even so, we all understood each other's role, and that that's criti was critical. I think we understood each other's role, so there wasn't friction. You know, they're not saying, "Oh, they're stepping on our toes," or we're saying, "We're stepping on their toes." It, it, we knew what we were supposed to be doing. Well, while that didn't have friction, that moved smoothly. There was some friction between. The people on the ground in headquarters yeah. back in Langley or oh, in the yeah. Pentagon. Um, and several times in the book, you discuss the just the perception, the disconnect in understanding between people back at headquarters and people in the field. You, they say that different worlds, you can use that phrase in the book. And then there's something you talk about close air support. Uh, there's an there's a anecdote in the book about where you were calling in to do a report back to headquarters, and your colleague had been calling in very close, close air support. Um, and the person on the other end that you were talking to didn't understand what was happening, thought you had dropped coffee versus a bomb. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then there's the horse feed story, which yeah. I want you to tell. Okay. Um, and the idea that when someone at CIA died, 
they use the word shocked yeah. in response. And it's like, how far away from the battlefield are they when they don't realize that this is a battlefield? Yeah. That yeah. someone is going to probably die, and more people probably will fall in that also. Yeah, I, th I think that's kind of a natural thing that happens between any field element and a headquarters element. They, they, they're, they're, they're in different worlds, and sometimes you know those two worlds never don't gel very well. But in the case of uh, the close air support incident you mentioned, and that was again for a while the combo gear I had, even though we got the military guys with us, it was only good for secure voice communications. I couldn't send any text, so every report I sent, I had to dictate it. And you know, I'm in a tactical environment and I'm having to dictate every report where normally you'd type it up and shoot it through a satellite. Well, in this case, I had to do a satellite comms, but dictate it. And that was uh, it's the middle of the night. For me, it was like you know, 2 in the morning. For headquarters, it's 2 in the afternoon, roughly. And uh, so they're, you know, they're in different worlds, literally, in that sense. Uh, and uh, in that case, yeah, we were calling. I wasn't, but the SF team leader in that moment was calling in close air support and some convoys that were coming on us. And uh, one, I don't know where it hit, but it was, was really loud. And I was, and uh, it was, you know, I jumped, it was so loud. And, uh, but the lady I was talking to on the other end, uh, she said, what was that? Did you drop your coffee cup? I'm like, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't even answer her. I didn't really tell her what happened. I just, you know, continued on. But, uh, and then the, the horse feed, another example. Uh, a lot of the teams were operating in the north, and they actually did use horses up there. And I really was mad that I didn't have a team that had horses because I grew up with horses. And I would really would have felt. I, like I would have. Yeah, then I would have really yeah. felt like New Mexico. But uh, so I was really, you know, upset about that. Not really upset, but it would have been kind of cool. But um, anyway, what what happened though? One day, when we'd get air supplies, would be dropped by, via parachute to us, and we would have to go out and inventory what they sent us, what they had dropped to us, and send a report back, and. Uh, well, one day, when they, when it's actually at night when they drop them, uh, we, we got our supplies, we're unloading them, and uh, lo and behold, there's two bags of horse feed. And, um, you know, so we do our report, and I have to, you know, I have to check everything before it goes out, because it's going out basically under my signature, so to speak. And, you know, everything looks good. Yeah, it's good. And it was just a routine report about what we received, so I probably didn't pay a lot of attention to what it said, actually. And so, but after I sent the, the message, um, to headquarters, I was looking at our, our log sheet and looking at the different messages, and I was reading it. And what it had said, what someone, it wasn't me, one of my teammates, probably one of the paramilitary guys that was with us, had put, just to make sure headquarters understood, we didn't have any horses. When we put two bags of horse feed, they put in parent, parent, you know, parentheses, they said, we don't have any effing horses. But they didn't say, but they didn't say effing. And, uh, and that was a big deal because uh, you'd never, ever use profanity in official CIA communications. You just don't. And, and here I am looking at this cable that supposedly I sent, you know, that I wrote that and I sent it out and my headquarters was looking at this. So there's going to be some historian in 80 years <laughs> telling the story of Afghanistan going through these documents. That'll give them a good chuckle. Um, but what's amazing to me is despite all of this, despite the, the bureaucratic snafus and the fact that Foxtrot was thrown together at the last minute, you actually were the first group into Kandahar. Yeah, we were. You know, that was the ultimate target of several of these operations, and, you, and Foxtrot was the first team in. Uh, and you hunkered down at the governor's palace, and you actually were able to go back and... and leave the paramilitary aside and do some hardcore intelligence work mm -hmm. once you got there. Can you talk a little bit about the take from the governor's palace in Kandahar? Yeah. Well, a couple of things I would like to say. Uh, 
yes, we were the first team in, and I'm very proud of that. However, uh, Echo Team uh, came in, basically half the team came in the next day and the next day after that. And the reason they, they weren't, we were, ideally we were going to hit, hit Kandahar at the same time, but they had just a few days before had been hit by an errant bomb. And it killed a number of, of people, to include uh, two of the SFers that were with Echo Team, working with us when I was there before I got switched over to Foxtrot, and wounded everyone else on the, on the ODA. So they had been delayed. They had, a, you know, Karzai himself was injured in that bombing. Uh, so they were delayed a bit, but uh, they came down. They were there the next day. But we were. I was the first. giving you a chance to take a victory. Lap. I know. You didn't know I know. That. I know. <laughs> and also, I want to. I gotta gotta say. Also, it wasn't. It was. Just, it wasn't the CIA guys. Foxtrot. It was also the Special Forces ODA that entered the town at the same time as we did. So it wasn't just us. You know, was, there were others involved in that. But um, anyway, you mentioned uh, now. I forgot your question about the about the compound. We were in the, the compound. The take. The you got a chance to do some okay. real hardcore intelligence yeah. collection. Yeah, we had uh, we are headquarters had already prepared a, a list of places they want us to raid there in Kandahar. That's where Al Qaeda had been kind of headquartered there. That was kind of a main sanctuary for them. And so uh, the, we were hoping we were going to ca maybe capture some. We actually captured some Al Qaeda, captured or killed some Al Qaeda on the way to Kandahar in the village of Taktapul that we held for about 10 days um, when we were trying to get into Kandahar and had to get past the uh, airport there in Kandahar because it was being held by the bad guys. And once we were able to get moved past, we got in Kandahar and we started going, you know, going after those targets that we had, uh, those buildings and houses that headquarters had said go, to go raid. And we were hoping to either capture more guys. We figured they're probably gone by now uh, or at least get some intel out of it. And we actually... Um, did get some intel. Probably the, the obvious, no question. The most important thing we got out of it was a, uh, a uh, basically a casing report and attack plan to attack a U.S. naval ship, the Carl Vincent, in Singapore by a, an Al Qaeda affiliated cell in Southeast Asia, and it, and they you know casing report, photos, uh, video, uh, diagrams, everything, and this was going to be something like on the scale of the coal. Well, except uh, the Carl Vinson is not the coal. The Carl yeah. Vinson is a massive, yeah. you know, yeah. nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. Right. So yes, yeah. it's a different ship. That's yeah. true. But it was that sort of. But I'm saying it could have been catastrophic beyond yeah. the level. I mean, of the yeah. Coal. yeah. And so that report got out, you know, immediately, of course. And uh, it took a few weeks, but they basically rounded up everybody in, in Southeast Asia. That whole cell was wrapped up. So that, you know, I feel like that above probably any single thing. Uh, was made it all worthwhile for them to form a Foxtrot team mm -hmm. to send it in because we don't know how many how many sailors would have been killed. There's also a lot of other targets they were looking at in Singapore, uh, international targets that they were going to go after as well. well. And then people may know the name Jose Padilla as well mm -hmm. and some of the intelligence yep. take, although you didn't know it at the time, right. uh, what you got actually helped to lead to the That is correct. He, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda, believe it or not, they're very, uh, very bureaucratic in their in their and they're keep, keeping notes and things like that and keeping track of things, and they have an application form, essentially, for people who want to apply to become an Al-Qaeda member. And, uh, and so they had, uh, he had applied, and we had, a, we, were kept, we had boxes of stuff that we got in, this, uh, in the governor's compound, which has been held by uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban before we moved in there. Uh, so we, there was still stuff they hadn't gotten rid of. And we, we found, found that, and we didn't know that was in there, but it turned out that was his application form, has fingerprints on it, and that was used in, in trial. That Mark, who did the sorting and all that, uh, testified in his trial in, in, in disguise and alias as to the chain of custody of that information. That was part of the things that he was convicted on. 
So if you're starting your own terrorist organization, leave the bureaucracy <laughs> behind, have a streamlined approach yeah. uh, to your uh, application process. Um, we've talked a ton about bureaucracy, but one of the times the CIA and everybody else actually gets out of your way mm -hmm. is arguably the most important, and that's when you now have two Afghan leaders in the same city brought in by two different teams, mm -hmm. Hamid Karzai by Echo Team and then Shirzai by Foxtrot Team, who are essentially rivals in many ways. And the rift was, this, was had to be inevitable at that point. And instead of telling you what to do from Langley, you actually were asked to mediate and given power to try to cause, right. to solve this problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was, there were, there was always some tension there because they were, they were opposing, you know, they, they were coming into the same objective, Kandahar, right? And uh, for Shirzai, for him, it was coming back to take his governorship. That's what he was after, to take his governorship back. Um, Karzai, of course, we were looking, even then, we were hoping that he would come out on top of everything and, and, and be the future leader of, of Afghanistan. But um, so there's, and, and Shirzai knows this as well. So there's, there's some friction there uh, on, um, on their different roles and all that. And, 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 and they're, even though they actually have a, relate, they have a family, familiar relationship, I think they're second cousins, or, or maybe first cousins, but they are related. Uh, but so what happened was when, when we t finally took Kandahar, then Karzai kind of assumed primacy. Before he'd been nominated, before he became the actual leader of Afghanistan, he kind of took charge in a way, in a sense, and he was w willing to, um, he wanted the, the former governor, Taliban governor, of, of Kandahar, then he wanted him to um, become like a kind of a security chief of Kandahar province to help, to help, he felt that that guy would help uh, breach and bring in Taliban elements to lay down their arms and this kind of thing. So he had a reason for he wanted to do this. But Shirzai hated this guy. There was no way, and also we had intelligence that, that he was helping him, or he was helping the Al-Qaeda guys who were still in hiding get out of country and get out of Kandahar. So uh, Shirzai was like, no way is he going to become the provincial security chief. You know, not going to happen. And so there was this real friction. And this was so important that they stay united because these are, both, both of them are Pashtuns. Taliban is made up of Pashtuns. And these are anti-Taliban anti Pashtuns. So we could not afford for them to be a, there'd be a split between them. Something like 40% of the population of Afghanistan right. is Pashtun as well. So Correct. they're... That could break basically the entire country apart. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So the, 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 we had to kind of lay the law down, so to speak. And Greg, the Echo Team leader, who was very close to Karzai uh, at that point, especially after all they had been through, um, and myself with, with Shirzai, as well, I brought Mark along because Mark uh, was from Islamabad Station and he he knew Shirzai as well, and I wanted him to be there. So we go to this meeting between the two to uh, kind of sort things out. Basically, we were just told, "Hey, guys, you know, you got to you got to come to an, an agreement here. You, you can't. This is for the good of the country. You've got to get this thing resolved." And and to his to his credit, Karzai said, "Well, let me do my own checking into this reporting about the about the um, the, the guy helping the the guy he wanted to appoint as the chief of security helping Al Qaeda get out of Kandahar." And he used his own sources, and he was able to confirm what we were telling him. And at that point, he said. That's fine. We're not going to appoint him to the chief of security. And at that point, Shirzai was happy, and it was all resolved. Until 10 minutes later when, it, when Afghanistan yeah. Um Before we wrap up this conversation, let me ask you a question. How many emails do you have in your inbox right now? 
100, 1,000, 20,000? If your email is anything like mine used to be, the answer is too many. But here's the thing. Even though I knew I wanted to do something about it, I didn't know how. I knew I'd miss something important if I just deleted them all, although that would be a glorious moment. But there were too many emails to go through one at a time. Then I finally learned the secret to reaching inbox zero and taking back my email sanity. It's called SaneBox, and I can't recommend it enough. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all the trivial stuff to a different folder. So the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all the junk so you can focus on messages that matter, there's this really cool feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. It's so good. There's also Sane Reminders, where SaneBox will automatically remind me when I need to do a follow-up email, so nothing falls through the cracks. You can also snooze emails, which is a great way to defer or de-emphasize less urgent emails, and I can read them later. SaneBox works on top of your existing setup. You don't need to change your habits by creating a new email account or downloading a new app. SaneBox just makes your existing one awesome. Because we could all use more organization in our life, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit SaneBox.com slash SpyCast today, and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't even have to enter your credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Check it out today and let me know if you love the black hole and reaching inbox zero as much as I do. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash SpyCast. So let me, before we jump out to questions, which we are, so start thinking about that now. Um, it's been 16 years. Mm-hmm. We're still there. It doesn't look like it's getting uh, significantly better. Right. Um, based on your experiences, can we have peace in Afghanistan without including the Taliban, whether it's big T Taliban or little T Taliban or however we want to define this? Um, and is there a military solution that we haven't somehow been able to find mm-hmm. in the last 16 years? What, what is your prognosis for Afghanistan moving forward? Well, I first don't believe there is a military solution there. I don't, I don't think, unless we wanted to just completely turn into a, you know, much larger than what we did before with 100, well, 100,000 troops. Uh, and I don't think anyone's ready to do that or wants to do that or that we should do that. Uh, so I, I do not think there is a military solution to, uh, to the problems in Afghanistan. I was very hopeful uh, right after uh, December 2001. We had had this pretty good success there. Uh, the Taliban was out of office. They were on their heels. I, I thought that there would be a, a chance to uh, get the country up on running and unified and have a kind of a stable country. But uh, I'm not nearly as hopeful any longer. And, and you know, you got to look at the the history behind the, the country. And this is nothing, what's going on now is nothing new. It's been going on a long, long time. And uh, like uh, I think it's Einstein who said, uh, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result is the, a definition of insanity. And I think we've got a little bit of that going on in Afghanistan. We were hopeful, we had good intentions, but it's, it's a tough country. It's a, it's a, it's a primitive country. Uh, it's a it's a ge- geographically uh, isolated country and ethnically divided. Uh, it has so many internal type divisions. Uh, it manages when it's not doesn't have foreign forces in there. It seems to get along okay. It seems to manage itself pretty pretty well. Hasn't historically, and it comes together typically when there's a like a foreign invasion, like with the Russians or the Persians or the 
Mongols or the British. Or the British. Four or five yeah, they, or... they end up turning against us. Now, they haven't, as a nation, done that to us, to the United States yet. I, I, and I think that's partly because we've gone about this a little bit smarter. But I think as it goes, the longer it goes, the greater risk we run of that happening. So I don't think there's a military solution. I, I, I say in my book at the end, you know, the, really the only solution is a negotiated peace. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think the Taliban are right now or any position they're going to want to negotiate. But I do think we need to be thinking about leaving Afghanistan, not getting up and, and hightailing out immediately. But we need to give up on the idea that we are going to build this nation into a stable country. Was it winnable in December of 01 and 2002? I, I think, you know, I really think where we got off track, I think our best hope actually of making it a, 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 from the nation building standpoint, stability, political stability and all that, was really those first couple of years. But unfortunately, I think the U.S. screwed up when we uh, invaded Iraq. At that point, and I can speak to this because I was, I was in a job at headquarters in uh, dealing with Afghanistan, and um, all the focus of the government, basically, really went to Iraq. And we went into a whole, whole position in, in Afghanistan in terms of the resources and all that. We were still trying to do stuff, but if we had not invaded Iraq, if we had been able to keep focused on, on Afghanistan, especially after those initial success we had in 2001, I think that would have been our best opportunity to be able to stabilize the place and be gone, uh, or be mostly gone. Right. And um, unfortunately, that opportunity has come and gone, and I don't think we're going to get it back. So we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. If you will wait to ask your question until either Sean or Amanda will have a microphone. Uh, but if you have a question, please raise your hand right down here. Sean is coming behind you with the mic. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about the federally administered tribal areas and when that became an issue of complication on how to get control over that area and how it became an escape point for folks to get into? Well, that, that area, of course, is uh, a lot of people refer to that like a no man's land. And it's, it's the you know, Pakistani government has, uh, you know, kind of, it's an autonomous region. They, they pretty much kept their forces out of that. But what happened is because everything, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a historian. I don't want to pretend I'm a historian here. But, but where it became a real issue was with, with, the, with the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, uh, some of the Chechens that were coming into the area, and so that they could go into those those tribal areas, leave Afghanistan, go into those tribal areas, and uh, and there it was they were pretty much um, not going to be, you know, uh, attacked at that point early on. That changed. The Pakistanis actually started doing some uh, you know, aggressive military offensive operations into the the tribal areas. But you know, those are very remote areas. It's it's um, you know, Pashtuns. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people think we ought to just get, erase that border and kind of make on either side of the border, just call that Pashtun land. And because and the Pashtuns that live there, right there by the border, they don't really respect that border because to them it's a very artificial thing. So um, I really can't speak to it other than to say that because it was kind of a, a, a no man's land in a way that the government of Pakistan did not uh, try to intervene militarily there until things got really bad. And, and, and they did start intervening there when, again, a lot of the foreign fighters were coming in there. And then also some of this bled over into Pakistan, and that just wasn't just affecting Afghanistan. But it's, it's, this whole, the whole Pakistan issue is what really is one of the other major complications to, to the whole situation in Afghanistan. Because, because the border's pretty porous, because of the, the PAC's, uh, their, what they perceive as their strategic interest in, that, in, in Afghanistan, it just really complicates the, the whole idea of trying to come up with some kind of 
peaceful settlement in the region. Well, I think a lot of people have focused on, you know, they know the story of the Kurds and the fact that the Kurds are like four different countries. Right. Pashtuns, same basic. I mean, yeah. I think with the historically with the breakup of, you know, the uh, the British Empire in South Asia, there was this attempt to create, I guess, a Pashtunistan mm -hmm. uh, that would be both in Pakistan and Afghanistan yeah. because they just they see themselves as tribe uh, tribe before country. In right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They do. Uh, yes. In front, she's coming right behind you. So it's it's my understanding that the present administration somehow thinks that the um, strategic interest of the Pakistanis can be aligned with uh, our interest. I'm just curious about your assessment of that. Do you think that's correct? That could actually occur. And I and I don't even know what are the strategic interests of the Pakistanis as it relates to Afghanistan. Well, their probably their biggest concern from a foreign uh, national security standpoint is India. India is, in fact, their number one security concern, and uh, and Afghanistan is seen as a uh, a buffer state, if you will, and they don't want the Indians having a lot of influence in in uh, Af Afghanistan. And that's why you know President Trump the other day mentioned in a speech the idea that, that first kind of chastising the Pakistanis and then then um, then saying welcoming the idea of Indians investing more in in, in Afghanistan that that had to get the Pakistanis' attention. Uh, but that's their, their strategic, strategic interest is um, minimizing the influence of India in that region and specifically in, in Afghanistan. But as far as aligning, I mean, there are some places where, yeah, our strategic interests should align with, with Pakistan. We, we want Pakistan to be a, a stable country, and, you know, it's armed with nuclear weapons. Uh, we don't want terrorists running around their country um, that maybe get their hands on the, those weapons. So, and I don't think the PAC government wants that either. So that's one area that we can, um, you know, I can all agree on. Where it gets kind of dicey is, is uh, just for historical reasons and the PAC government involvement in the efforts in Afghanistan, which we were working with them on back during the day when the Russians had invaded and we were we were supplying the Mujahideen with arms and that. We were doing that basically through the Pakistani government, of course, through their, their ISI, their intel service. And, and they have a long, long connection to a lot of the, the Taliban elements, uh, the Haqqani network uh, that they had worked with over those years. And so there's, there's this idea that there's this residual uh, feeling of support or, or um, you know, people who support these groups still within the government. Um, they're, you know, the, the PACs, I think, have tried to actually minimize that and weed out people they think are actively supporting them. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not involved in that anymore. But that's always been a concern, that the PACs are still somehow, through their, their service, uh, supporting some of these, these players in, the, in Afghanistan that we are at war with. All the way in the back. Well, I can tell you, I didn't see a single woman my entire time in Afghanistan. <laughs> not one. Uh, they were they're just not allowed to be anywhere where especially a foreigner might see them. Uh, so I didn't see them. I, I will say that I, I do think that there are some statistics, if you will, some that it shows, some research that shows that 
one good thing about our involvement in Afghanistan, and not just us, but the other countries have been involved in Afghanistan, that more, more women are and more children, uh, girls, are going to school than there were. So there's been some, some, some progress there. I think the problem will be in the future going forward is uh, if the Taliban either ultimately does take control or, or if there's some kind of agreement reached where they, be, they become part of the government and are willing to, to do that, um, that they're going to fight against that just because of their, their traditional beliefs about the, the women of, of the role of women and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a long, hard road, I think, you know, on a lot of fronts, but certainly on the idea of, you know, equal rights for women, uh, education for girls. But some progress has been made. That's one of the, I think we should feel proud about that having happened in Afghanistan. So it hasn't all, even if we left tomorrow, it wouldn't all be a loss. Uh, there's been some progress. Their health, their health is overall better. But going, making more progress, it's just, it's going to be hard. Yeah, uh, let's go in the back there also. Um, let me thank you for, um, for a really interesting presentation. Uh, but I have a few questions. Uh, the first question is um, regarding um, the role of um, the um, Russia in Afghanistan. Um, early on, obviously, they were helping with the you know, planes coming in, et cetera, et cetera. Is that ongoing? And you know, the American presence in uh, Russia as the relationships become more problematical. Are they starting to create more problems for, for the United States in that case? And maybe you can talk about that. And the second question is um, Iran, obviously. Iran um, has quite tense relationships with, um, often with the Taliban, but, you know, also tense relationships with the United States. How do you see that uh, complexity, geopolitical and geostrategical playing out going forward? And do you believe ultimately to help solve the problem in, um, in Afghanistan, that better relationships would ultimately also be need to be realized or some common understandings come to with uh, both uh, Russia and, uh, and, uh, and, and Iran, and maybe talk about China too also. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you know, I, frankly, I, I, I can't really speak so much to the, the whole Russian uh, current. You're talking current involvement of Russia in Afghanistan, and they're, and they're trying to gain influence in the country. I really, I really am not in a good position to comment one way or other on that. Uh, I think that it's, it's certainly, you know, they've, they've had a historical interest in Afghanistan. As we know, it probably their invasion there, and then they're, they're, they're leaving there probably resulted in, the, you know, the demise of the... Soviet Union, so uh, they they have a, a long-term uh, historical connection to Afghanistan, and they see they may see this as a, you know there are some uh, some you know there's some wealth in Afghanistan in terms of um, you know some natural resources, and so they may want to gain influence there and try and try to be have just more influence in the region in general going through Afghanistan. But I really I really don't I can't answer your question very well on the on the whole Russian uh, front aspect. Uh, as far as the UN and the Americans, yeah, we you know we often conflict with the UN or are not are not on the same sheet of music when we're trying to do things. I think you're absolutely right in that you know if we're any any kind of situation like an Afghanistan situation, if if we are there in a big way and the UN is there in a big way, it's all the better if we are really coordinating what we're doing and and make sure we're not undermining each other 
there, but beyond that, I really what about really Iran? Can't I mean, what, when you were there, were you cognizant of any of the larger regional tensions between Sunni Shiite and many well, separations? Of course, Iran was uh, basically an enemy of the Taliban. The Iran actually offered to help us after the 9/11 attacks because uh, they they were you know the the Taliban is a is a you know uh, not a Shia organization. Now they're Sunni and they're they're Wahhabis and and they're and so there's a natural and they're also not they're not Persians. Uh, so there was a natural uh, conflict there between them and the Iranians actually were willing to help us out a bit there at the initial part. Things have changed now. Part of that, and, and they are certainly, uh, there's a lot of news reports in a way about the Iranians uh, trying to get involved uh, in Afghanistan and giving support to one group or another. And again, I trace that back, frankly, to uh, the invasion in Iraq. Uh, when we eliminated Saddam Hussein, that was, that was Iran's uh, counterbalance, strategic counterbalance in the region. When he went away, we shouldn't be surprised that, that the Iranians are now gaining a lot of influence in the region. We just took out the one, one guy, leader, who could kind of held him in place. So uh, that has come back to haunt us in, in a lot of ways, I feel. Time for one last question right down here in front. Yeah. You mentioned how you reached out and the importance of uh, Pashtun elements. To what extent did you reach or try to reach the non-Pashtun groups? And what problems did you have with coordinating between the Pashtuns, the Tajiks, Hazaras, and others? Yeah, we, we, uh, we, the only, only group we had that wasn't Pashtun with us uh, was we had a group of Hazaras, which I thought was great. I was so excited about that because they, they speak uh, Dari, and I used to speak Farsi, which is kind of the same language. So I was really looking forward to talking to them in that language. But it turns out they have such a thick accent and uh, it, that it was, they would laugh at my, my speaking to them. But, so they were the only group other than Pashtuns that I worked with now. But in the north, that was, the Northern Alliance was made up primarily of uh, Tajiks and Uzbeks, and even, even some Pashtuns were part of the Northern Alliance as well. And there, I'm not sure if there were any Hazars. With, yeah, there were some Hazars with the Northern Alliance. So, but that was, so we had a relationship with all those, the agency did anyway, through those teams that were up there operating with the Northern Alliance. They were each team, basically up north, the way it worked is our teams would work with one of the major commanders within the Northern Alliance. And they were doing the same thing with those guys up in the Northern Alliance. Uh, they had actually had an army up there in the Northern Alliance. So they had tanks, helicopters, artillery, all that. Uh, we were doing the same thing in the south, although we didn't have an army to work with. We just had basically guerrilla groups is what we were doing. Um, but so, so yeah, we had relationships with those, and they did. Um, you know, they knew. You know, we we kept we tried to pass information back and forth so that the Northern Alliance guys knew what was going on in the south, and we knew what was going on in the north. That kind of thing. Um, but we weren't directly dealing with it where I was with any of the other ethnic groups. Well, please join me in thanking Dwayne Evans for taking the time to talk to us here today. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter Casper and Sanebox for the continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free by going to ZipRecruiter.com SpyCast. You can also get $50 toward any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash spycast and using the code spycast. And visit sanebox.com slash spycast today, and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the already free two-week trial. 
Thank you, and we'll see you next week.